Hi, welcome to Already Christianity again. Sorry for the 10 minute late start on a 30 minute delayed start. Uh, George was teaching at church tonight. He was talking to the young adult group and so he kind of fit both of them in. We're gonna normally start at 8.30 like we said, but I've been told that in webcasting and it's not podcasting yet, I'm gonna learn that there's not really any rules except just being yourself, at least for us. And so today I'm, ex I'm really excited about this. Last, time, last week we talked about I had talked about George, Saulo and I had a great conversation, I think, and it, it, it seems that way. People enjoyed the conversation, and so we want to continue that conversation, but to do that, I think it's important to know who George Arujo is. Um, I've known George for coming up on 10 years. I have to say this, Romans 13 says, to give honor to whom honor is due. And I have to say, and he hates when I say this, if he turns red, it's not makeup, we didn't put any on him today. But that this man has is, 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 is been instrumental in my theological uh, growth and, and over the last 10 years. And, and he's been a blessing to me just as a friend, but also as a, as a spiritual mentor and a theological mentor. And we actually been teaching for years together, not just in the men's Bible study, but we do apologetics teaching. And what someone asked the other day is like, hey, you mentioned apologetics, what the hell does that mean? Apologetics, just briefly, we'll talk about this in another episode, means, comes from the Greek word apologia, to give an answer. And so when someone is an apologist for the Christian worldview, that you are prepared to give an answer. That comes from 2 Timothy 2.15 and 1 Peter 3.15, to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks why you have the hope in you. And then 2 Timothy 2.15 is do your best to show yourself approved to God, a worker, and that means you have to work, who's not embarrassed, that's a key word, not embarrassed to properly handle the word of truth. And that's where kind of George and I really get passionate about that. Not that we're the end all be all. So let me just be really clear about that because I understand that people are going to get their, their underwear all wadded up on this deal. But that we challenge people to really understand the Christian worldview and to be able to answer a question, why? Why are you a Christian? And so I'm going to plant that seed with you today. What answer would you give if somebody was in an elevator and said, oh, you're a Christian? Why are you a Christian? And does it play out in your life? And if it doesn't, ask yourself, why not? So... I want to introduce George. George, um, we've known each other for coming up on 10 years. Yep, that's right. Coming up on 10 years. This guy is a scientist. I just kind of give a little bit of a background for you. I mean, I, I just want them to understand your perspective of, of Christianity, your, your walk briefly in it, and why you take the angle, I shouldn't say angle, the perspective you do as, from a scientific background, which is very unique in my opinion. So I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a trained chemist. I actually went into science because I wanted to learn how to think. And I think thinking is a lost kind of a lost word today, right? I wanted to learn how to critically think um, and to be able to defend a particular position in something. I, I always like to learn how to solve problems and understanding the scientific method, the scientific inquiry, coming up with, with a hypothesis about what could possibly be going on. Um, putting a set of experiments together was always intriguing to me. Finding a way to test my hypothesis, man, it was very, very intriguing to me. I was always a very curious person, so I kind of fit with my personality well, but I went into science because I wanted to learn how to think through something and be able to support it in a logical way. Uh, that's why I went into it. I'm a trained chemist. Um, that means that, that uh, I went to school for chemistry. I have a bachelor's degree in chemistry from Delaware Valley College of Science and Agriculture. I wanted to go to a science school. Um, it is a science school. It's been around for about 100 years. Well, I'm real quick, George, I want to ask you yeah. this. Because I get this all the time, and you have too, and you and I have talked about this. So let me tell you the purpose of this. George and I, for 10 years, have had conversations, R-rated conversations. George calls them R-rated reflections. 
And, and what we want, the idea behind this podcast is to bring these conversations we've had over the last 10 years to, to people, to hopefully, God willing, for people to benefit from them. And, and they're going to be rough around the edges. And, and, sure. and, and we're, gonna, we're just going to be, we're just going to talk the way we talk. But it's always going to be truth-based. And, and one thing that George and I talk about all the time is that people seem to think you have to check your mind in at the door to be a Christian. And so for you to say, and we get this question all the time, science or your faith, that's a BS choice. Sure I mean, the, the, you don't have to choose science or your faith. And people think that science is an ideology, but exp it just briefly, I mean, it's, it's just a series of methods to help someone find truth. Well, I use the word faith and religious belief interchangeably. Um, the, the sort of heart deep connection uh, to a particular worldview. Um, my religious belief should have, let's say, a heart-deep connection to something that I consider to be divine. And, and uh, something that is divine could be something that you believe is self-existent, uh, something that's been around forever, that nothing created it. God, for, God, for instance, is divine because nothing created God. He's self-existent. And it, it kind of begs the question, is, is there something that you think um, that is indispensable, that you can't get rid of, that you think is so important? without which uh, you wouldn't be able to survive. It's a pretty good indication you've assigned a status of deity to that thing. And it could be anything. It could be this phone. And I would submit to social sciences coming out pretty strongly that we're putting a lot of attention on our phones, actually. Right? I mean, I see people walking across the street literally checking their phone while cars are flying by, including my own. They just can't do without that phone. So we could assign a status of deity or idolatry to anything. Yeah. And, and so it, it's good to define those terms. But let's so, just say what it so is. So that's I mean, a religious belief versus science, which is a set of methods. It's a set of methods to kind of discover the truth about something. But, it's we, a, but, it, but, but honestly, let's just say it the way it is. It's a bullshit choice. You don't have to sure. choose science or your faith. I mean, I mean well, truth, it, truth, it, it, science is the rational pursuit of truth, right? We've talked about that. But it's a crappy choice because it's, it's apples and oranges. One is a set of methods, and the other one's a religious belief. So the idea, if someone proposes to you that you have to choose between the two, it's nonsense. It's like, it's like choosing between a phone and a train, okay? They're not the same thing. So what is it exactly that That's we're choosing before? We're choosing between two different sets of beliefs, two different worldviews. And, and science has nothing to do with that. Now, I would propose that modern science has been tainted by a religious belief, something called uh, either philosophical naturalism or methodological naturalism, which is, the belief, again, no, which is the belief that you, when you go into a scientific laboratory, whatever you discover can't possibly have a supernatural uh, connection or a supernatural genesis, no pun intended. And so whatever you discover is strictly natural. Well, that's not scientific. If you go into a scientific inquiry and you've already sort of predisposed the method, you've already had a presupposition about what you will or you won't discover, then that's not really science. So science is uh, an investigation, an empirical investigation, looking at something uh, through multiple observations and then coming up with a theory about what it is that you've observed, right, to explain some sort of phenomena. You can't say, uh, I'm going to do an experiment and come hell or high water, this can't possibly be discovered. And this can't possibly be discovered. And if this and this are discovered, then I'm going to make the following conclusions. You're, you're sort of introducing a premise into the investigation, right? right? And that's what's, I think that happens a lot today when, when you have a secularist. But, what I, but I want people to understand that you being a scientist actually helped strengthen your faith. Well, sure it did. I mean, because you said yeah. it's an investigation. I deal with investigations. And so when George and I first met... Because God's rational. I mean, so you're looking at 
you're looking at experiments, I'm looking at evidence. And so when we teach, I mean, you take a scientific approach and a legal approach, and, and, and we say this all the time, and I'm not saying we're the first people that have said this, the, the reason why we follow the Christian worldview is, is because it's true. Because when you logically look at the evidence or the experiments or the, what you have before you to evaluate, the methods we use to evaluate the Christian worldview, it comes back to a conclusion which is true, that it's consistent, logically consistent, and it doesn't contradict itself. And so that's why I know that my journey was that way. Yours was, your journey was way before mine because you're older than I am. And so, and so, and so, but, but, but together, and that's the approach we, we've taken. And so I just wanted to... I don't, and I actually don't think that that's a terribly radical approach. It, seems, well, to, it seems to me very consistent with the approach that God takes. We are created in the image of God. We have the Imago Dei. So we resemble uh, God in the sense that we care about the things he cares about, right? We're compassionate creatures like he's compassionate. We, 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 uh, we think about things that have meaning. We consider the implications of our actions. We're concerned about good and evil. Where's that come from? There, there's, there's no scientific mechanism to explain that. Uh, that clearly differentiates human beings. We're, we're, we're exceptional beings relative to any other complex biological life because we can do those things. And so where does that come from? Well, the Bible has an explanation for that. It's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. God deposited a portion of himself in people. It's called a spirit. We're spiritual beings. So, but we're also rational. We're not, as you said, called to check in our brains at the gate. We think rationally. So it seems to me that the scientific method, the scientific inquiry process is very consistent with a Christian proposition because it's about discovering the truth and Christianity and truth are interconnected. So, I mean, it seems to me they're, they're great bedfellows. Well, and, and we're going to talk about that as, as time goes on. Look, there's going to be different subjects that come up and we've, we talked about that we address subjects not only from viewers but things that we've, we've encountered over the last nine, ten years, I mean, sure. nine and a half years at least in the Bible study, but then in our different conferences or teaching questions that we've facilitated yes. back and forth. So I, I just wanted to establish some of your, a little bit of your so training. I, did, you did seminary. So. No, I mean, so I, I decided in between my chemistry degree and, and, and my graduate degree that I was going to uh, check out uh, seminary and kind of, kind of dabble in it. Um, and that's really all that I did. I dabbled in it to know that it was very interesting and, and it kind of whetted my appetite. But in the middle of that, I happened to be working for a major pharmaceutical company. Um, I was working for Merck at the time, I think I'm free to say that, um, and, and decided as part of my career path to get an MBA. So I have a degree in chemistry and I got a graduate degree, I have a, a, a master's in business administration. Um, and you're from a University. Right, that's right. And so I, I enjoyed it very much and you know, God blessed me with lots of curiosity. I'm, I'm, uh, he gave me uh, a, an almost, uh, pathological hunger uh, to learn. And so I, I completed my MBA and, um, and, and, and because I worked, you had nothing I worked, to do, I worked on the bench. What that means is I, I, I did quality control chemistry crazy. and out of trouble with this guy. I mean, I, I'm forced him. to talk in, uh, in fragments here. So, you know, I, well, look, can I, you I, tell, you can tell that, that he's smart. I mean, but, but you're, you're not really, you're, yes, you are. Yes. Okay. Really, he's humble too. I'm, I'm, right. I'm, I'm a, ra I'm, you know, I'm a rationalist. I understand that, but, you, but you're a smart son of a bitch. Just admit it, please. So, so here, so here's the deal. All I'm trying to establish here is, what's wrong? Just move it a little bit. Okay. We're going to get you to podcast though. Right there, right yeah. Right. Okay. Well, but, but the, but the bottom line is, is, is that you take a scientific approach to your faith in your journey. I've taught, I've taken a legal evidentiary 
approach as I shared with everybody last week. And then us talking together, I mean, it, it, it's a BS choice, science or faith. I'm just saying that the methods that you learned and you've been trained in in your chemist degree, you, yeah, you kind so of apply those it, methods. It, so when we, we don't do experiments with the Bible in the sense that we would do experiments in real time and space with something, right? Because we're talking about events that happened in the New Testament 2,000 years ago. And if you're talking about the Old Testament, you're going back into ancient Near Eastern literature, so it's 1500 BC or about 3500 to 4000 years. So the scientific method is going to work in a sense that we're kind of looking back. And so we take, I guess, the, the best way to explain it would be uh, with Dr. William Craig, uh, who, who I think is a, a philosopher extraordinaire, has said, the approach is to take the inference to the best explanation. You, you take all of the facts, you take all of the data. That's the best and, explanation and, you, and, and so you ask yourself, and it seems to me what, what Einstein used to call a Gedanken experimenten, which is a thought experiment. What is the best, what could conceivably be the best explanation for the data that we have before us? What, what actually accounts for the best explanation? And what we find, and, and I would exclude the Christian worldview from this because I think the Christian worldview, since it's not afraid of truth, since Jesus uh, said that he came to testify to the truth. Right, right? John 18. And John chapter 18. Um, we know he's committed to the truth. The entire Christian worldview is based on the truth. God loves the truth. You can't have reconciliation without the truth. You can't have healing without the truth. In any relationship today, you're trying to have a path forward and, and you want to heal the past, you got to deal with the past. You can't pretend it didn't happen. And so you need to have a, a truthful discussion about what happened, who's responsible for what. Uh, you know, people got accept it. responsibility. Deal with the truth. God loves the truth. So. We, we're connected to the truth. We have to deal with the truth. Well, and that's and that's and you know this. Our conversations, the way when we teach the men's Bible study, has always been foc focused around the truth. And as John and John A. John, Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And so and so I, I wanted to. I we told the audience last week that we were going to talk about some statistics that at least if if somebody you know believes in or follows or tries to advocate lives in the Christian worldview, should it at the very least be concerned? I'm not saying scared of. I mean, I'm just using some words, but concerned. I mean, I, I said some of them last week, and, and I know you'll give the, the footnote or the, the, the Pew research from it or whatever the research it comes from, that in seven years, and this is old research, that the Christian world, people that identify as being a Christian in, in the United States dropped from 78% to 70%. So the research, uh, and these are, I mean, anybody can Google this. You can find it, uh, Pew Research Center. Uh, I, we, we tend to look at major polling centers that have a history of, of, of you know, doing very well. Uh, you know, it's, it's a snapshot in time, so there's always some error. Right. Uh, they define their error bars. Their methodology is, is pretty well decomposed for everybody to read. But Pew Research Center did uh, would seem to be a, a pretty statistically significant analysis of religious preferences, what they call religious affiliations. And they broke that down across various demographic groups across 30, 50, 50, all 50 states. It came out to be some, a significant sample size of around 35,000 respondents. And it was done between 2007 and 2014. And people could look it up because I think it was published May 12, 2015. So it wasn't that long ago, but it's, yeah. a, hor it's a horizontal analysis so that right. we, can, we have enough time to be able to see a trend. And it seemed to me a rather sobering trend that those who affiliated themselves with the Christian worldview in 2007 clocked in at about 78.4. And then, and then seven years later, they're at 70.6. Well, so, but, but the religious unaffiliated 
went up commensurately right. by 7%. So it raises some interesting questions. Why? Well, that, that's what was the next. Don't take my questions, that's George. So I'm the lawyer in this deal. And so, and so it's, it's, it's why. The question is why. See what he did? So why? Why did that you happen? You have to be a lawyer to ask a question. No, no. <laughs> well, I got to control the answer. I mean, this guy will talk until the sun doesn't come up. But, but, but it's all good information, and it's gonna, you're going to get more from, from, from George as, as time goes on. But within that 70%, sure. Within that 70%, the amount of people that are persuaded, as, as we say, are convinced of a biblical worldview is somewhere in the 15% out of that 70%. Sure. So the, so the question is, what the hell are people believing? I mean, if, if, if it's one thing that, that people that used to identify as, as being a Christian or with a Christian worldview significantly dropped over a relatively short period of time. I think that's, that's a fair statement. But then within that 70%, less, around 15%, and... He can correct me later, but it's a low, it's a relatively low number. Believe in, are convinced, are persuaded by, advocate to live out a biblical worldview. You know, within that very analysis, without even getting is out that of, true? First, sure it is. Okay, now you but can you answer. can kind of back you into it. Okay. Um, within that very analysis, there is a kind of follow-up. It's called a recontact survey, where they delve down into the questions that they ask and the answers that were provided, because some of the answers were categorized at a high level. Uh, well, I'm no longer affiliated because I no longer believe. It's kind of a circular response. I mean, we, we figured you don't believe that much, and that's probably why you pulled away from the Christian worldview. I mean, your, 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 uh, your beliefs are not, not really Rooted. sort of tethered to a deep conviction, right? right? So, okay, that doesn't really help me. Uh, so there were some generic categories, but then when you delve down to, to answers, they seem to break out along scientific and philosophical reasons. Um, and, and two things emerged. One was the idea this, that we just talked about a few minutes ago. This is why these conversations are related. Because there was this false choice between what science is arguing about reality. And science isn't arguing anything about reality. But this is, this is what was kind of implied in the answers. That, that science, science has told me that I don't need to believe in God. Well, science says God's no such thing. Right. Science just says... Um, here are the observations, and here's the data. And then, it, and, and then through, again, deductive reasoning uh, and, and, and some inference, you make some conclusions. And then you test those conclusions again. Okay. So it's just a process to get at the truth. Try, try, science makes no such claim about why something happens. It just says something happened. So it was interesting that, that a lot of the responses came down to this false choice between picking what science is arguing um, versus what the Bible is. Well, we're, we're gonna, we're so gonna. That, that's an important conversation to have. And I was gonna say, and that's a different conversation. And then there was the problem of evil. If you have this wonderful, benevolent, kind, loving, kind God like the Bible positions Him, then why do good people suffer? Why do you have people who who are you know trying to live good lives? They they try to be benevolent in what they do. They they try to do the right thing, and man, it's just one horrible thing after another. Okay. And you and, and then they they, they cite. Children dying in the streets and, and, and sort of, uh, you know, economically challenged countries where, where death and mayhem rule, eternal it seems. And so those were the two, the two reasons, what I call intellectual barriers. And intellectual barriers because they asked the question and they said that no answers were forthcoming. That in their experience in the Christian worldview that unsatisfactory answers kept coming back sort of really surfacey answers that weren't very satisfying. And, you know, 
and they kind of pulled away. We're gonna work on 20 minute answers for you, just so as time goes on, just FYI. All right. But but no, I'm, I'm teasing. I'm just busting in the balls. Be, I'll be but, but no, but but, but no, but I know there's information. I'm just saying there's information that we need to talk about. We're gonna unpack all these things. I just want people to know. I mean, the first episode there was a lot of responses. Well, how long do I have between answers? Like two minutes? No, thirty but I, seconds. No, no, no. I'm just right. saying. But I mean, first I don't need to interpret his answers. But all I'm saying is we're gonna unpack some of these things. We're gonna unpack. I I know I I touched on a, a buddy of mine commented that, man, you, you talked about a lot of juicy topics, but we didn't unpack them. And, and the first episode was more of just an introduction. I mean, what the, why R-rated Christianity? How, how, what's my journey to Christianity? Your journey to Christianity? Your background? Your mindset? I am not a science guy. There's no doubt about that. I've learned a lot more science and how it applies or doesn't apply these methods to the Christian analysis and even in my legal analysis of looking at it. But I'm not a science. I don't think the way he does and he doesn't think the way I do. But we're going to unpack a lot of these issues. I mean, that's the, where the rubber meets the road. Why do bad things happen to quote-unquote good people? That's an issue, and that's something that needs to be unpacked, mm-hmm. and, and we will. That, that's a whole episode in and of itself, because I promise you, every time we've taught on that issue, every time we've taught on an issue, I mean, we'll hang out there. I mean, that's where people are pissed off at God. That's where I was angry with God. Um, either that or some horrible representative of Christianity or this false choice of science. But, but, but all this leads to the third statistic that I really wanted to bring up and make sure that we bring this issue out because I, I said we'd flesh it, at least lay the foundation to analyzing and answering these questions, is when, 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 when a child goes, a child, when a young person goes off to college and claims to be a Christian, I mean, these are people that, that claim the Christian worldview, somewhere between 75 and 80% after a year of being bombarded of antagonistically, against the Christian worldview will walk away from the Christian worldview. And statistics say that somewhere around only a third will come back at some point in their life. Mm-hmm. Now, now that, that's got to be an issue. I mean, if you have these so-called young people that believe in the Christian worldview, but then will walk away because something that they experienced persuaded them or convinced them to think that Christianity is full of crap or, or there is no God or whatever they're being experienced to. And once they're challenged, because you find out what you truly believe when you're challenged, Right? Sure. And, and now, just speak briefly on that. I mean, not briefly. I'm sorry. Don't, don't overthink it. Just... I'll try to make it quick. No, no. I, okay. I think there's a couple things going on. Uh, there, you know, I think most people are following along. If they're not, I think this is critical that there is uh, an, just an outright assault on the Christian worldview at colleges and universities all over the country. Yeah. Um, there is, uh, there's just an overwhelming pool of data. In fact, talk about it. Talk about it. That's not a 20-minute answer. It's a 20-hour answer. I mean, it's there's just a lot out there. But I think what you could look at is perhaps uh, a study in terms of the religiosity of young people mm. between 18 and 29 years of age, that there seems to be a, a, a precipitous increase, uh, a pretty dramatic increase in irreligiosity uh, between... Well, you be- some English. English. What do you well, mean? It's, it's the idea that uh, it's the pulling away from religious belief. And, and the adherence to, to increasingly secular worldviews. And the, uh, you know, this is a pretty significant, I think it's Lancer Research Associates um, did it in 2018, and I think ABC and Washington Post paid for the study. But people ought to look that up because you're talking about a significant horizontal analysis here. I mean, over a decade and something like 173,000 respondents. So there's a significant pool of data there. And what's happening is that individuals in that age bracket, which are obviously high school and college uh, and university uh, age groups, that they are pulling away 
from religious belief. Um, much faster than anybody say in my age group. And so uh, what we see is from 16%, there's an increase, it seems to me, uh, in irreligiosity um, from about 16% to 35% across that decade. That's, that's twofold. That, that's incredible. And so what is leading to that? And yet if you look at an age group like mine, it's, it's only about 5%. So what's happening in that age group? To the younger folks. It's a legitimate question. Yep. What are they doing? Well, the vast majority of those respondents are in colleges and universities. It seems to me a logical question to ask, what is it that I'm being exposed okay. to? What is it that I'm being exposed to that's causing me to reconsider um, what I believe? Well, they're talking about an indoctrination of brainwashing our young people and professors who will judge and ridicule their students for their Christian back. Well, it's true. I mean, this is from, from Lee Brown. I mean, making a comment that Christians are actually targeted, so to speak. I mean, you, you are, I mean, it's open season on Christian. This is, this, but, and this is where I think that Man, the lack of training. That's a whole hour. Well, I, well this is my <laughs> point. I mean, again, again, this is more of a, of, of a laying the foundation of once again, once now that, that you kind of we talking through your background and what, what, what is one of the issues we need to deal with, we're gonna unpack all these issues. I mean, we're gonna talk about things like evolution. You sure. know, intelligent design versus natural selection. That's an issue that Christians should handle. We're gonna talk about everything from abortion. That has to be handled. These are things that have to, I mean, you have to talk about the relevant issues well, of the Well, we talk time. about the, thing, the things God cares about. Well, we're not if that's talking true. about them just because, oh, we're really interested in these things and kind of pull them out of our ass, if you'll excuse the Greek. We, we care about the things that God cares about. And God cares about those things. And the reason he cares about those things is because improperly handling them destroys people. And he cares about people. But, but I think, I think a, a, loving, a loving challenge, and hear my heart when I say this. I say this, but I, I've been saying this consistently. A loving challenge is that the pulpits should be addressing these things. Yeah. Sure. The pulpits. Saulo, we, you, we've talked about this off air. George and I have, have been preaching this, so to speak, for, for years, that the pulpits are not addressing these issues that our young people Kenan, are going to. Kenneth says you can't prove the existence of God. But the church refuses to teach it that level. Well, I mean, well, yeah, there's, there's a, that's, a, that's, a whole, that's a whole talk in itself about can you prove... Well, from a scientific perspective, you never talk in terms of proofs. You talk in terms of probabilities. You can't, yeah. you can't prove it, right? Um, I think he's talking you, about evidence, though. There's evidence of sure. intelligent so, design. So, I mean, no one so thinks that... The church about, doesn't address it. Yes. Well, part you? of the problem, it's difficult to address something that you don't truly understand. And I'm generalizing. Not every church doesn't understand the basics. But young people in particular, uh, and, and I, sh I shouldn't really say this because the, I don't think the data supports it, so I need to correct that. I think, unfortunately, it's, it's uh, irrespective of age groups. You'd really have to get kind of my age group. I'm, I'm 50, and I think you, you almost have to get into my age group to find individuals who have some understanding of basic doctrine. And I'm not trying to pat myself in the back. I say that begrudgingly. I'm not happy about it. But, uh, you know, is... We talk about this in men's Bible study our time. Is, or is the average Christian prepared to explain what it means to be a Christian? Yep. A, I mean, just a basic question. Somebody said, you're a Christian. What does that mean? But the second part of it is this what? Is do you live it out? Right? Therefore the, the, what? Yeah, therefore what? How shall you live your life now? And, and, and is it real? The thing that irritates the crap out of me are, are fake-ass Christians. They, they check off the box, and, and, I, and I'll go off on a tangent on this, so I'm going to kind of temper myself so we can stay on point. But they check off the box, they put on a show. I mean, yeah. it's almost like this Facebook, you know, whatever, Instagram, whatever the hell's out there now, and then puts on a show, and then they go back living their crappy life. And, and that's, that's not what we're called to do. People always say, practice what you preach. We talked about that this morning in Bible study. 
practice but think about that let's anal- just break that down practice what you preach that implies that you preach something and then try to practice it versus preach what you practice let that sink in a little bit that's right the, ter- the, the the phrase should be preach what you practice not practice what you preach that means i'm not going to be a hypocrite i'm going to preach what i've already been practicing and so I think one of the criticisms to the Christian worldview is you guys are a bunch of bullshit hip- hypocrites. And you know, you just listen to Bill Maher for five minutes and that guy sure. goes bananas on, on Christianity. And then he always gets some weak-ass Christian on the show with him yeah. to, to make himself look like he's so smart. Well, Bill Maher is in no danger of accepting good advice. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't engage. He no, doesn't, I know. He doesn't, he doesn't, it's he doesn't a engage. bunch of sound He's bites, not interested in engaging. I know. And, and Christians are afraid but to it's influ- But it, it doesn't help. It's when, when, you, when you watch that... And he's, and he's got charisma and he's funny and he, he drops a bunch of F-bombs and I'm not criticizing him for that. But I'm just, I'm just telling you. And then, and then so you leave an impression to his audience that, aha. Right. And we talked about this last week. If, if someone were to ask me a calculus question and I don't know the answer to calculus, you, you, you logically can't say, aha, calculus is fake. It's, full of, it's not true. It just means that Nico LaHood doesn't know the answer to that calculus question. And so I think that a lot of Christians are not prepared to engage and just say, look, there's an answer. I just don't know it. And so they're walking away. I mean, I, parents are saying this all the time. My kids are coming back different. Well, and, it's a bad combination. You've got a culture that increasingly labels, that responds emotionally to things. And... You've got a church that is afraid to engage. To be labeled. Right. That's a terrible combination. (laughs) Think about that. Let that sink in. That doesn't seem like a really great idea. And so the Great Commission is precisely the opposite. What what did you call it the other morning? The Great what? Well, now it's the Great Omission. The Great Omission. They don't say anything anymore. Nobody talks about any any form of judgment. No no one talks about sin. Everyone thinks that you have to live this, this kumbaya, perfect life to be a Christian and that's just that Bible and I'm telling you this is one of the reasons that inspired the idea in my mind to to name this R-rated Christianity that Bible you have to work pretty damn hard to make that book boring there is sex there's there's the the, the depravity of the human mind there's murder there's arrogance there's hypocrisy there's I mean you name it ever read read the book of Judges yeah r-rated yeah that's on, a, that's on a good day i know all so, i'm saying is i'm not saying, life. we're not saying live life that way we're just saying can yeah. you live inside of that environment without being influenced that's exactly right i, I yeah. can't I, I really can't remember this pastor from louisiana his name is chris something but he said this so i want to give him credit for it and i say this all the time we are called as the church to set the culture not to reflect the culture yeah. listen to that we're called to set the culture that's what salt and light means that's what the great commission means Go out and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Well, you can't tell someone to teach. You have to show it to them in your actions, number one. Sure. Right? Preach what you practice, not practice what you preach. Mm-hmm. Be able to give an answer, and that takes a little bit of time. George, we, we, we talk about this all the time. People think that they're doing God a favor by spending an hour and 15 minutes on church on Sunday. And, then, and they think, well, shit, I gave you my time. What, what else do you want from me? I mean, they spend four hours on the golf course. They spend X amount of hours doing whatever else. They, they, they binge watch this. They're playing video games. They're doing everything. But then if you're truly persuaded that you're going to stand before this guy named Jesus, shouldn't that influence you, persuade you, convince you to kind of prepare for that, com- that meeting? You know, I had an old professor who said, you could you go to church every, every Sunday. Every, get tons, put tons of money in the offering plate. Die and go straight to hell. <laughs> well, he got that got, from Matthew 7, right? Well, he got that from Scripture. Well, yeah. Uh, and, and that, you know, God, God doesn't want anybody to perish, right? That was the, the whole point of, of John chapter 3 there. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And, and he wants people to experience salvation. Okay, so now what? What are we doing? But there's nothing kooky about being a Christian. I mean, it irritates me when people think that you have to be this goody to, I mean, there's, you just, just be authentic. That, this is the whole premise behind um, this format. Be authentic. It doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. We don't get to make up our own rules, but don't give God rules that he didn't give us. That's what religious people do. They, they're so religious because they think they're godly. And then when you're not godly and they really want to act like you act, then they get pissed off at you and then they want to send you to hell with, with gasoline drawers on, right? Because you didn't act the way they wanted you to act and they're mishandling the Bible. Yeah. And, and, and we have to be very cautious to do that. And so when, when I'm out there with friends of, that invited me to do prison ministry or if I'm at a halfway house or if I'm talking to a quote unquote and I can't stand labeling people at-risk kids or just young people in general, I want them to know to hang out with a guy named Jesus. Is, is, is a practical, real, beneficial, redemptive, loving thing that you don't have to be fake. Well, I mean, I, I just, the, the fakeness is not what is endorsed. The whole, that's the whole point. Not what I was, was going to say is that you're saved for a purpose. We're saved by grace, but for good works. Mm. We're not just saved to be saved. And so, what well, you, well, so unpack that. I promise you, someone's going to have a question about that. Not, well, I mean, so, I'll so, unpack so, it because so it's out of right out of religion. Says, I re, but don't forget Ephesians. Not, don't forget Ephesians. He won't forget it. Trust me. But but a lot of religious people say you have to do X Y Z, check off the box, and then you're saved. Sure. So That's we not what know scripture says. The, the scripture clearly says that we're saved by grace. And right. We're not saved by works. Right. We're not. We don't achieve our way into eternal life. Uh, it comes out, right? You can read that. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. I think verse 28. Chapter 4, verse 6. I think Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Um, lots, I mean, it's all over the place. But we're saved for a purpose, right? What's that purpose? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. At the tail end, it talks about grace. But you're saved by grace to do what? For good works. But those good works are a reflection of the relationship. That's right. We're, we're mediating God's presence on earth. The church is God's, God's mediator. What we, what we always what say, are we doing with that? What we, what we say is your behavior is a dashboard. It is. So, so if, if I say that I love my wife, my behavior should reflect the fact that I love, I mean, I love my wife, by the way. She's not here. She's with the kids. So love each other. If you're, <clears throat> if you're watching, if you're not watching, then you can watch it later. But, but if I say I love my wife and my children, my behavior should be a dashboard, should reflect the relationship. Sure. And so our behavior is just a dashboard. How convinced or persuaded are you on whatever? If I call you a friend, my behavior should reflect the fact that we're friends. At the act of salvation, what changes <clears throat> it is that I'm no longer hostile to the things of God. Okay? I'm no longer hostile to him. I embrace him. I'm on his side. Right? I reject an old way of thinking. I embrace a new way of thinking. And now the question we ask is, therefore what? That's right. The, so an inward change has happened. The Lord lives mm. within me. And I am now, by his grace, empowered to live a life that pleases him. So I think it's legitimate to ask. Grace is unmerited favor. It's, it's the strength to do something. You know, by God's grace, I did this and fill in the blank. That means by God's, I want to make sure people understand that we don't use these Christianese phrases of propitiation and justification, sanctification, revelation. There's a bunch of Christianese words that people use and they think, you know, and people are like, what the hell are you talking about? Speak English. So it is. And so it, grace is, is, is unmerited favor, number one, that you don't deserve it, but here's something that you don't so deserve. So I'd like to propose something on that point. Somebody should look up grace 
online, but go to the Greek interlinear. You should be able to well, find explain a, what that is. a Greek interlinear Bible, which basically takes an English passage and it has, it takes an English passage. I'm trying to describe myself and I will knock this thing off the table. Don't so, worry about it. So it takes an English passage and it has the Greek counterpart next to it. Mm. Okay. Um, and, and what it does is it pegs that word, let's say grace. Um, it, it pegs that word to what's called a concordance, a Strong's concordance number. And Strong's concordance is essentially a, a breakdown of that particular word in all its various meanings because the context matters. And so you ought to look up that word grace. And yes, the church uses it appropriately when it says it's unmerited favor, but it's much more than that. Right. It is the ability to do something that I normally would not be able to do in my own strength. That's so right. when I pray for grace, I don't pray for unmerited favor. I already have it. I pray for empowerment. Yes. I pray for an outpouring of empowerment that will equip me to react or respond accordingly in a particular situation, right, uh, related to the mission that God has set me on. And so this... So, so we've, we have the grace of God. We don't just have His favor, but we have His empowerment. And, and all I'm saying is that the expectation is that my outward behavior reflect Flex. the inward change. And, and, and that and, seems to me fairly a, a fairly straightforward expectation. Here's the challenge we do in, 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 in the studies we do. Once you are convinced and persuaded by the Christian worldview or by this guy named Jesus that walked the earth and you do right. a, a responsible study of his life, it's not okay to stay the same. And, and, and that's the challenge, even in the church. We want the best of both worlds. We want to keep our old fleshly behavior and do the crap we want to do and then, and then and get the benefit and the grace and all the benefits and the salvation. We want Jesus as a Savior, but nobody wants him as Lord. We yeah, always right. hold back. because What does it mean, Jesus is my Lord and Savior? Everybody says, oh, right. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. What the hell does that mean? Well, Savior, I get it. You're in quicksand. You're in a shitstorm of life. He pulls you out of it by his grace, right? By his power, his strength, right. his favor, all the stuff we just talked that's about. Right. But then now, what about the Lord part? What does that mean? Right. That means he gets to decide how you live your life. That's right. Ah, that's where people hold on. I'll give you this, but I don't want to give you this area of my life. And that's the battle, and that's the struggle, right? Mm -hmm. So Romans exactly 12, 2 said, do not, what? Conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed. That's a process. That's not a light switch. That's a process. Be transformed by the thing that George was talking about, the renewing of your mind. And, so we should just, and then we go down and, and it tells you what that looks like. So what does the renewing of the mind mean? The renewing of the mind means to correct thought, content, and error and replace it with something that's correct. Now that very proposition today is offensive because we have this new religion of offense in society now. right? We, we worship at the altar of, of the offense God. And, and, and the notion that somebody may be thinking incorrectly and needs to think correctly and in love, we introduce that today. But how do you make that argument? The bottom line is people are thinking, I promise you, is how do you make that argument? Because here's the deal. In a world that says that all religions are the same, all worldviews are the same, that everything is the same, we, we, yeah. we can't all be right. We can True. all be wrong. True. But Christianity can be in that. Everyone can be wrong, but everybody can't be right. So it begs to ask, what evidence do you have for your worldview being right? But I was trying to get back to your original point because I think it was really important. No. How you make the argument is obviously worthy of consideration and, and, and conversation, right? Uh, strategy matters. But we're, by the vacuum that we've created, we've allowed this radical intolerance for the very notion of a disagreeing proposition. 
So we, we've created an environment where the very notion of proposing something that, that doesn't go with the status quo is completely unacceptable. Never mind how. We need the courage from the pulpit to say that's not acceptable. Mm. We need courage. Mm. And you and I have talked about this. If you look at the, at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, yeah. love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Pain. goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, self right? Yep. One fruit, but nine manifestations of that fruit. Mm. All of that is irrelevant without courage. Hmm. Now, that's not my idea. I think uh, you know, Dennis Prager, who is a phenomenal um, articulator, of the Judeo-Christian worldview. I think I first heard that proposition from him, um, and I've tried to try to think that through, but I think there's a lot of merit to that. Now, it's not like that's not in Scripture. That is in Scripture. Jesus modeled it beautifully. He modeled courage. He didn't just pontificate endlessly on the Mount of Olives. I mean, Matthew chapter 5, 3 through Matthew 7, 27 is the Beatitudes. That's the coochie coo Jesus that well, I talked that, about coochie coo Jesus of, last that week. That the church is in love with. Right? <laughs> I mean, they read the same Bible I'm reading. I'm sure. I mean, have you anybody read Revelations three fifteen, Matthew seven, Matthew Jesus? I just he's so he's just I just love him. He's my teddy bear. Just, Don't ever do that he, again, George. He never. But I mean, I mean, I mean but. <laughs> All I'm saying is I know Matthew seven, Matthew twenty three, Matt. I mean, look, Jesus was bold. I mean, he was he was liberal with love, forgiveness, but he called people out in a loving way. I mean, all of this is call is for the benefit of the person for the hearer. Of course, I mean, even when he corrected the rich young ruler, right in Mark ten, he said, and with love in his heart, he corrected. He pulled out his issue was his money. He wanted all the benefits of Jesus, but didn't get want to give up what he wanted to give up. He didn't trust. Jesus' character. Because mm-hmm. he said, I'm not going to give up my money to follow you. What the hell are you talking about? I like you. I don't like you that much. And then he found out right then who his idol was. His idol was his money. And he walked That's away exactly. very sad. The scripture says, because he had a yeah, let's, crap load let's of money. Cla- let's clarify that. Please. God does not care how much money you have. That's exactly The more right. money you have, the better. Good for you. And, and he doesn't care that Christians can just be unbelievably wealthy. That's wonderful. That's called an asset. What if you you're a good it, right? steward of that, if you're a responsible manager of the things with which you've been entrusted, wonderful. That's a great opportunity to model the character of Christ. What he cares about in that story, it's an important story. It is. Um, I've spoken about it recently, but you know, we should, we should point people to that story. I think it's important to read it through. It's in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, you can look that up in Matthew chapter 19, uh, I think verses 16 through 29. Mark chapter 10, Mark 10. I think verses 17 through 30. And in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. And Nico's absolutely correct. He doesn't care about how much money the guy has. Yeah. He cares about the fact that his attachment is to the money and not to the God that he claims to follow. So he does expose hypocrisy, but he does it lovingly. And he does it brilliantly. I mean, Jesus is just so infinitely attractive because he doesn't beat him over the head. He doesn't diminish him. He doesn't demean him. But he actually works with the assumptions that he makes. Mm-hmm. Good teacher. You know what? Let's stop there. Let's talk yeah, about why that. Why are you calling me good? Just talked about this recently, and I think it bears repeating. He reor- immediately reorients him to what a true norm of goodness is. Hmm. It isn't... But, but, you, but isn't it, that consistent with, with, with the garden? We say this all the sure time. It is. What, and think about this. What is the only Absolutely. fruit, the tree that Adam and Eve were not supposed to? And we can talk about Adam and Eve. Don't freak out. People are going to say, Adam and Eve, you really believe in Adam and Eve? Yes, I do, because it's do in the Bible. Yeah. Now we have to be able to talk about that consistently. Adam but what is the only. What? That's red meat. Let's talk about Don't get them all worked up. We'll talk about that later. George. <laughs> I mean, so, Adam, what is the only tree that they weren't supposed to eat from? The tree of the knowledge of what, Salvo? 
Well, come on, Pace. He's doing the computer stuff. The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was it. Because we are not designed to know the difference because we'll screw it up. Not apart from God. Right. Exactly. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yes, I mean, so, and, and so it's very consistent when this rich young ruler says, good teacher, and Jesus immediately says, why do you call me good? Yeah. Right? I mean, that's, right. that's what you're talking because about. Because he recognizes that this guy is working, uh, he's working from an artificial sense of goodness. Hmm. And, and he's actually working um, from a very subjective view of goodness. And then Jesus kind of works with him. And it's interesting, Matthew and Mark describe <laughs> him generically. Matthew says this one, one came to Jesus. Mark says a man came to Jesus. And then Luke gives us a little more insight. He calls him a rich young ruler, or a rich ruler. Right. And so scholarship has determined, and various commentaries have determined, that this apparently is a person of great influence in the community. Uh, perhaps a synagogue leader. Um, someone who is uh, you know, an, an Israelite or a, a Jew, um, and not a Roman, because a Roman would not have addressed Jesus with that kind, of, that kind of level of respect. And so this is a person who cares about the law and cares about doing the right thing. And I think Jesus senses that. And I'm just, I, I'm, I'm trying to practice some basic eisegesis, which is read from the text. Explain what that is, because you're going to jack people up. I know what that is. I'm, I'm sorry. Eisegesis, uh, exegesis, means, I'm sorry. eisegesis means you're reading from the text, not reading into the text. Right. You don't want to... Right? That's, that's, don't put, the, don't put it, what it in the Bible what's not in the Bible. Right. So exegesis means exiting from the... Read from the text. Don't read right. into the text. That's right. And that's where a lot of denominations, a lot that's of people right. have their own agenda, and they read into the Bible. You can make out of the Bible what you want to make out of it. I hear that criticism all the time. Bullshit, No. The Bible is what it is. You have to study. We'll talk about this later. Hermeneutics, right. the interpretation, textual criticism. Right. That is is the original, the, like the copy, and then the culture, the, the the language of the time, because English was not, nobody was talking English back then. And so you really have to delve in like a scientist or like a lawyer and dissect the evidence to really get yeah, the truth. Yeah, and I know that. this is probably a very unpopular thing to say in our increasingly narcissistic world, of which I am part. That the, the text wasn't written directly to you. The text was written to people in the first century. Mm. Okay. That's good. Now, the, the norms have passed. They the have. culture has changed. Cultural norms have passed. They change. Styles change. The truth never changes. That's right. There's a truth in there that is meant for me. And so the question is, what's God trying to say? Always read the text from that perspective. What is God trying to tell we get caught up in the culture, the nuances of that book, reading a first century book or older, and we get caught up back then. I mean, we just look at context and, and our, sure. just over the last hundred years, things have changed. That's right. I mean, look what's acceptable on TV. Look how people act. Look what people say in public. Look what people dress. Look what people wear. Look what people talk about. How they use terminology and language and things. Styles, culture changes, but the truth doesn't. In a world that says there's relative truth, what's true for you is not true for me. What's good for you is not good for me. Speak your truth. Live your truth. All this BS out there. And this is what we're teaching our young people. Here's the problem. And I just, I mean, I just, I deal with the justice system, right? And I always call the justice system a social experiment, right? It's because you see people come in and whine them going out and you see this 72 to 74 percent what they call recidivism rate meaning what so what's happening there people aren't changing their mindset they're not looking at things they're putting band-aids on a cut instead of healing the cut they're not looking at the root cause of it and so you have when you have a problem when your truth conflicts with my truth the problem becomes survival of the fittest the i, I use this example all the time george you know this the lion eats the zebra sure. because he can and because he wants to there is not a discussion of, of what is the moral compass that I should be applying to this. Hey, George, you see that zebra over there? You think that's someone's daughter? That's got to right. be someone's wife. 
Maybe that's someone's mom. Man, they're really good. They, I don't give a shit. I'm hungry. You're hungry. And we can go get that zebra and eat it. That's right. That's just the bottom line. There's not a moral analysis in the jungle. And when you have no objective, like not having a penal code for society, hey, don't steal my stuff. Don't hit me if I'm not hitting you. Try not to kill me today. How about that? Don't sell drugs in my neighborhood and don't try to sexually assault my kid. Those are moral standards that we accept in a society. And if you don't follow them, there's consequences. But when it comes to social standards leading to the penal code, we say free for all, do whatever the hell you want. But then we're upset when people do whatever the hell they want and it becomes a jungle and then they end up in the justice system. I mean, it just it makes no logical sense. No, it doesn't. Uh, styles change all the time. How we express uh, ourselves changes in human culture. Um, and and you, you can see this throughout the biblical record. Uh, what doesn't change is good, truly good and evil as the Bible defines it. That doesn't change. Well, that's how does um, the Bible define it? I think that's important to talk about. Well, anytime you talk about murder, for instance, since it's low-hanging fruit, murder was always wrong. It was wrong then. It's wrong now. I, I uh, can't think of one civilized society where murder is, has actually been okay. A now, now, society now let's break that down because I mean I didn't know he was going to bring that up, but I deal with this. I mean, for a living, when I was a prosecutor, defense attorney. So, in, in when the Ten Commandments, "Thou shalt not kill," it's in the Hebrew, it's "Thou shalt not murder." That's sure. number one. That's right. Proverbs six sixteen says that God, out of the six things that God hates, and the seventh he detests, but one of the six is God hates. And if God hates something, you should get your attention because He doesn't say that often. He hates the spilling of what kind of blood? Innocent blood. Salo's back paying attention. And then Ecclesiastes 3, it says there's a time for everything under the sun, including a time to kill, kill, not murder. Meaning if someone busts in the house and you have to defend your family, your loved one, third person, there is an appropriate time to end someone's life if the situation calls for it. So there's a time to kill, sure. never a time to murder. That's right. These are the dis- so I'm going exactly to your point. Right. No, sure it is. And it's important to understand the distinction. And, and the text is very clear on that. And unfortunately, it's misrepresented uh, to, to create this sort of weird notion of pacifism, uh, which I think is rather destructive. I do find uh, a pacifistic interpretation of the gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, and certainly the, the passage that you, you just cited uh, from the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. I think it's destructive to do that. Um, when you mean passive, make actually, sure I want I just I don't want to assume that people understand terminology. Well, and I'm not saying that, that to be viol- disrespectful. It's the right? notion that all violence is wrong. Okay, that's 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 the definition of pacifism that you're looking at. Yeah, and I see, and it, and it seems to me uh, that that's um, that that that's just a really stupid proposition. I mean that as respectfully as as, as I can sound when I say it's a stupid proposition, but it is. Uh, because that's like saying with all due respect your your mom's or whatever you know fill in the blank that's right you're, hey, with all due respect your kid's ugly as shit I mean that's what, I mean that's what I mean, I mean just say it just say it's stupid let's pray yeah <laughs> this guy I'm sorry go ahead I mean you know like with all due respect fixes everything at least in my day go ahead I'm sorry George the bible is a multilingual book yeah go ahead no, go ahead. Sorry, I, I just no it's an important point of clarity because um, basics like that aren't being taught in the church mm. they're not and so getting back to these polls, the polls that we cite, whether it's Barna Research, or that's another one that people ought to look up, Barna Research Group, uh, uh, I think it was in November of 2016, asked non-believers. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was an affiliation question, but related to non-believers. What's, I mean, they had shopped around, they had visited churches, but they remained unbelievers and asked the questions and then, and then decomposed those questions, and the same thing happened. 
There's an interesting connection between the nuns category, N-O-N-E's, the religiously unaffiliated in that Pew Research poll that I cited that was published in May 12th of 15, to the Well, nuns non- are not atheists. Nuns are people that, N-O-N-E. Yeah. They're not religiously affiliated. So right. So they, it doesn't mean they, they necessarily don't believe in some type of transcendent God. So they're not saying that I'm an atheist like, like a Sam Harris or somebody else. They're saying... We're not affiliated with anything. So what is happening is that the spirituality factor in the nuns is decreasing. Mm-hmm. And for a while, it used to be, uh, to use an overused word, disenfranchised uh, sort of former Christians uh, who, who have kind of become disillusioned with the church, the inability of the church to engage in issues where, where around which people are living and dying every day in the culture. All of the buzzwords, there's a ton of politically incorrect uh, nuances going around with regard to, to sexuality today. The church doesn't engage that. No. It doesn't. It, it, it stays away from that. We, usually, we, we have sort of extreme responses where we're sort of immediately condemning everybody to hell as if we know the eternal disposition of human beings. It's absurd. Or we're not engaging at all. So, so, so this is where the church is. And whose responsibility is that? Well, the responsibility is the church's responsibility. Right, the ch- and the church. And when we say just so, when we say the big C church, we're talking about the body of Christ. That's anybody that affiliates with the Christian worldview and a Christian church. They from behind the pulpit. It is. It is. I believe church's responsibility to address all issues. I I had a discussion with a pastor. I'm not going to say his name. I mean, it's irrelevant right now. That after doing an interview, we've had lots of discussions with lots. Well, of I know, brother. Right? I mean, but I mean, I, I say it lovingly because yeah. it matters to me. Look, I've seen evil when I was in the DA's office. I'm, I'm the depravity of the human condition. I, I won't even describe to you because everybody says, "Man, why do you have to be so damn graphic?" But but I saw a lot of graphic things, and nothing kept me up at night like the thought of the world that we're going to leave back to our kids. Right. Th- that's what motivates me to be. Honest. And, and you know me, and it's not some bull- I'm not some, not some flowery answer to, to sound good. I mean, that really motivates me to, to think about the world that we're leaving back to our kids. So the question that we ask, and I ask, and you ask is, what are we doing about it? And so I was talking to this one <laughs> pastor, and it was a nice conversation. It wasn't disrespectful at all or mean. It was just loving, challenging, and back and forth. Oh, we don't address issues in our church. I was like, what the hell are you gonna, what do you mean you don't address issues? And, and so we're gonna address issues eventually. We're gonna, we're gonna be looking at the Christian worldview with, with life, and we're gonna be teaching expositorily, right? Yeah. Can you explain what that means to <clears throat> so make sure people understand what that well, means? Well, we wanna expose what the text is actually saying. Right. Um, we, we don't wanna bend it into a banana to suit our, our modern proclivities or sensibilities. We're not gonna preach an unoffensive gospel. We preach what it is. And we always say Jesus wasn't trying to offend people, but he, was trying, he wasn't trying not to offend them right, either. Right. I mean, if it offends you, it offends you. It is what it is. But it's all about, it's, it, 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 we look, I think the church needs to work on approach. Sure. I mean, but, but not avoid things. I mean, when you are afraid to stand for, I mean, we're teaching this now in our Bible, men's Bible study. We're talking, we've been talking for 15 months on the characteristics of a biblically minded, 15 months. I don't know how the hell that happened, but it's so juicy because we go through these five characteristics of, of, of that, that men should have if they're biblically minded, if they're, they're well, Christians. Hold on a second. I, I know how it happened because we get questions in yeah. the middle of the presentation. Well, the true. question goes something like this. Hey, hey stop right there. Um, I had this situation happen at work. Somebody said this. Man, I can't believe they said that. What do I say in return? I mean, or what do I so, do or so, what happens? Or what about this question, right? So we're doing this kind of in-process application in the real world. And we'll take whatever questions. And all of them are messy. And they're stuff the church runs from. And that's what I'm trying to say. You said the church needs to work on their approach. I would go one step back. The church needs to be freaking present. We need to be present. We're not present right now. We're talking to ourselves in language that only we can understand. That's true. We're in an echo chamber. 
and we're in the dark and we're and, and I I suspect what's troubling to me of course I'm generalizing here we have to be able to, to, to generalize here if we're going to learn anything I realize there's exceptions but we're, we're stumbling around in the dark and we're not even trying to find a door hmm. because the dark is normal and so this is now normative we're not engaging we don't we don't want to be called judgmental you and I have chatted about this. You go back 20, 25 well, I don't years chat. ago. We've talked about you it. had secularists 20 or 25 years ago who could actually quote John 3.16, which we just quoted 15 minutes ago. Yep. For God so loved the world, right? Everybody knew John 3.16. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, that's not the most popular verse anymore. That's been replaced by Matthew 7.1. Judge not, <laughs> yes, but ye be not judged. judged. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. God forbid I have an opinion. But they don't read anything. the rest of that, though. Christ is talking about hypocritical judgment. Don't by modern definition, it's the most judgmental chapter in Matthew. By the way, the whole book, the whole book is about making assessments. Jesus is addressing, addressing, interestingly enough, the the Jewish priestly caste, the religious structures of the day. He's talking to the church of the day throughout the entire text, whether it's Matthew seven or Matthew thirteen or Matthew nineteen or all the way through or or, or Matthew twenty five. I mean. It's an indictment of this religiosity, the pretense of holiness, the pretense of being different, when in fact, they're exactly the same. They just have a robe on. Mm. And look, we're getting to the end of this episode, but, but, and, and we bring up this issue that, well, of course, we bring it up right too now. Much? No, 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 you're doing you fine. Don't worry me. about it. Yeah. Stop I'm not going to stop him. Lee Brown says um, Christians are losing the will to fight for their beliefs and pastors are more worried about their numbers than their substance. Well, see, this is my point. I mean, so here's the deal. When you're talking to, and I'm going to say this lovingly, hear my heart when I say this. Pastors are worried, not all of them. Hear me when I say it, not all of them. This is, I'm not going to paint with a yes. broad brush, but it seems like the overall theme is that pastors are worried about being called name on Twitter, Facebook, and the people that I read about in this book, well, this is not a book, but people that we read about in the Bible gave their life for it. Because they were so persuaded and convinced, sure, they were ready to die for it, sure. And so, and we're worried about being called names, and we're not studying to hand, to show ourselves approved. We're not handling these these issues properly through the biblical worldview. To me, it's like we have five hour energy sermons. You go in there and you get this energy drink sermon. You feel good, rah rah rah, and you got a little cheerleading act, and then you go back to your shitty life, and then you don't know what to do about it because the five hour energy sermon wore off. I don't want a five-hour energy sermon. People are dealing with some real shit in life. I mean, the stuff that I see and when I talk to people and you see the brokenness and they're starving for, for sincerity and authenticity and direction, and the direction's all in the Christian, it just is. I mean, I, I didn't come here, you heard last week, by, by, by going to some tent revival. I mean, I came through brokenness and anger and rage. I mean, and the answers were in, in, in the study, a responsible, logical study, evidentiary study of the Christian worldview and the life we, of Jesus we Christ. To, we talk to pastors all the time who, who have actually said, and who frequently say... And well, not all well, of them. We, I really want to make sure we say that it's not every pastor. Right? Let, let's assume what we're saying. Let's look at it as a representative sample, shall we? Because I think we have enough data points. And, and obviously there are exclusions there. But I think it's fair to say representatively that there's this notion that we'll talk about the gospel, but we're not apologists. Well, that doesn't make any sense. The gospel means good news. Preaching good news implies that there's bad news. news. So immediately out of the gate, there's a contrast. If you can't present a contrast, what the hell are you talking about? What are you changing? So let me get this straight. Um, God tarries with his people. What? 
sorry. God hangs in there with his people for 1,500 years, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he deals with their BS for 1,500 years in, in virtually every color, the most, the most grass, graphic uh, sort of denial of God yep. and rejection of his instruction, mm -hmm. of his law. For 1,500 years, you've got this wonderful human experiment in the Old Testament, okay? Then Jesus shows up in the new, the new covenant. And we'll get into all this later. Yeah, we'll get into all this I'm just stuff, trying to make way. a point here to, to, to get to this whole, this whole notion of I don't want to be an apologist, God forbid. Jesus shows up, and of course, he is apologist extraordinaire. Defender of the faith. A, a defender of the faith. Mm -hmm. he, he's a walking polemic, an argument. He's making an argument for the things of God. And so he is, man, he's a walking contrast in the sense that there, there's, here's the standard of the world and here's the standard of God. And he's taking all kinds of heat. And it is the only way that he can present the gospel in a context of contrast. That's the only way to do it. Hmm. And, and then he goes to the cross, sheds his blood for, for, because of my miserable pride, okay? For on my behalf, so that his righteousness can be assigned to me. I mean, just suffers a horrific death. And, and we'll even The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson in 2004 does, I mean, just scratches the surface in the amount of violence uh, exerted upon the body of Jesus. In fact, we have a body of research that has looked into this analytically, which we, we should we, share, we, and from peer-reviewed journals. He goes through all of that. Mm. For what exactly? The, the, the church isn't talking about sin. So... Jesus did all of that. Or how that. to deal with it. If you, take, if you take sort of the mode and the tempo of where the church is when they present the gospel, you have this God who is hugely melodramatic. He did all of that to solve a problem that apparently didn't exist. So did he do it out of boredom? So how the hell do you talk about good news? How do you even position the cross? Which, which is a, a, an abhorrent, drastic, horrible thing. If you can't talk about an equally abhorrent problem, which is the problem of sin. And here's the deal. Sin is separation from God at its Simple fundamental. That. That's exactly right. It's falling short of a standard. God defines a standard. Yes, he gets to do that. So he does that, sets a standard. We fall short of the standard, Right? And so we reject God. We reject our source of life. By the way, this is why death results from sin. Mm -hmm. Death results from sin because when we sin, we reject our source of life. Of sin, and the right? result of rejecting life is death. death. That's why. Okay, that's what, that's what uh, Paul is discussing, it seems to me, in Romans chapter 6. I think it's verse 26. So we, we have to talk about it in the terms that God has defined for what it is. Sin is a disgusting and horrible thing. Its impact on people is horrible and disgusting. And that, that is how we need to position it. That means we need to be able to find sin for sin. We are not willing to do that in the church at all today. And we damn well better rise up to the occasion. We damn well better do that. Or we are not going to have a damn thing to talk about. Well, with like, all respect. <laughs> with all due respect, your, your kid's ugly as shit. Okay. I mean, I mean what's he saying? I mean, look, I mean, it's, it's, these days, I mean, it's like a bunch of motivational speeches. Look, tr when you deal with truth in an authentic way, it motivates people. I mean, it just does. I mean, one thing that I get very into, I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm calling myself out. I'm, if a pastor walks up there and gives me some stupid, corny Christian joke, 
to get my attention, if you have to give me a corny ass Christian joke <laughs> to get my attention, then we're not talking about jack squat that's important in my life. I mean, just that simple. You talk about my kids, my marriage, my future, poor choices, why I think the way, battling with sin. Romans 7 talks about why do I do what I want to do and I don't want to do with this and, right. and why we're battling with our spirit and our flesh. And when you're talking about relevant topics, you got my attention. I mean, when I was looking for a shoulder surgeon after I, when I needed shoulder surgery a while back, I mean, I, I watched boring ass videos on shoulder surgery and rehab for hours because I, you had my attention. It was something very relevant in my life. Fill in the blank if you're dealing with an illness, your financial problem, right. a, a, a child That's problem, right. whatever it is, you got your attention if you're talking about serious and important relevant facts. Exactly and if right. you have to entertain me, you show me one passage in the Bible where Jesus gave two craps about entertaining the crowd. Just show me one. I promise you, I'll, I'm going to mimic it. I'll mimic it. He didn't juggle. He didn't give some stupid-ass joke. He didn't say, hey, what? Well, I don't want to offend you. And, oh, Billy, hey, Zacchaeus, and over here, and Caiaphas, and this, that. He said, I don't give a shit what you think, essentially. Here's the truth. The truth sets you free. Period. End of story. And, by the way, I'm going to model it for you. So Jesus doesn't That's say, right. do as I say. He says, do as I did. And I can't stand hypocrisy, and Jesus wasn't a hypocrite. That's what it's caught my every, attention initially. Every Christian's job, pastor or not, every Christian's job to present the gospel of Jesus Christ as objectively true, yep. rationally compelling, yep. and subjectively engaging. We have to be Explain able... Explain what those are, though, because I mean, the first time that you and I talked about Well, it's got to be objectively true. I remember true. thinking, like, there, what the hell is this guy talking there's about? There's a set of facts. So, so truth is objective, it's not subjective, meaning it's not based on your opinion. Sure, facts are facts. Okay. Now, gravity our, is gravity. If I drop this phone, I don't care how you feel about gravity or what you think is going to happen to this phone. If I drop this phone, and obviously I've dropped this phone many times, it's going to break, it's going to fall. Period, end of story. Truth doesn't give two craps about your feelings. That's number one. We didn't invent gravity, we discovered, discovered it. Right? Okay, that's number so, one. So it's... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, it's, objectively it's, true. It's objectively true. You don't, you know, facts are facts. Our interpretations of the facts may differ. Our opinions of the facts may differ. That's all, that's all fair game. Mm. But the facts are the facts. And Christianity deals with the facts at hand. It doesn't create its own facts. So mm. it's objectively true. Okay. It's rationally compelling. Mm. It, you, you've got to be able to describe it in a stepwise, logical sense. Logically it has consistent. to make sense. Right. People have to be able to process it. Right. And finally, it's got to be subjectively engaging. I can talk about something that's objectively true, right? I can be very rational, but but if it doesn't mean anything to someone, if it has no relevance to their life, mm. then who gives a crap? So we have to be able to do that. And if we want to know how to do that, look at what Jesus did. I look like the, I look like the bad guy here because George cusses more than this, and he's making me look like a jerk off. <laughs> I mean, because you can, you can let it fly in the next one. Just a little bit. Just a little bit more. I know you're smart. But just As the Lord leads. <laughs> well, all, all I'm saying is I hope you get the feel where we're going with this. I know it, at the beginning, I mean, you know, we, I, I wanted to give a little background to you, George, but I, I, I want to make sure that we tackle all these topics, and we're going to unpack them, folks. I mean, we're not going to just give you a bunch of sound bites or rhetoric or give you a, a quick thing no. you can write down and then just start putting on Instagram sure, and just repeat. We want you to understand and, and, and Timothy talks, First Timothy 4 talks about that physical training is important for most things, but spiritual training in, here's that word that no one wants to talk about, holiness is good for all things. Now, what's holiness? Oh, you're holier than thou. I'm not holier than thou. I'm a broken ass SOB, and Christ still loves the crap out of me, and he died for me. And we're going to study the, the crucifixion. And if it does not have a profound effect on you when you truly study the historicity of the crucifixion, 
and what this guy Jesus Christ went through. He was unrecognizable, unrecognizable. I mean, I, I was using the example earlier, and just to make it real, it's almost like George and I going, I mean, who the hell is that? Damn, he's all jacked up. It's like, that's that guy, Yeshua, Jesus. The guy that was in, Joseph's kid? Yeah, well, yeah. Mary and Joseph's kid. Are you shit, are you sure it's him? Doesn't look like him, I can't recognize him. He's all jacked up and torn up, his organs are exposed. No, he was in front of Caiaphas, he was in front of Pilate. I promise you it's him. No, they didn't let him out of his sight. They even let go of that other nut job for him, and they went, he's going to get crucified. Physiologically, it's an Damn, absolute man. miracle he even made it to the cross. But, but, but my point, my, tell me if I'm exaggerating, George. Correct me, please. He was unrecognizable. Yeah, I mean, he would We know, I mean, think about what, I mean, so if you haven't watched The Passion, because the, the crucifixion is a historical event. This is not something that Christians are making up. It's like, oh yeah, whatever, and fairy dust and Tinkerbell bullshit. I mean, it's not, it, it, he was crucified. And crucifixions, Romans were excellent at murder. They were, they were phenomenal murderers. And they murdered Jesus Christ. That was a murder scene. A period, end of story. Sure. And, and, and watch the passion, please. And I mean that respectfully. And, if, and, and if you have to go like this to the passion, which a lot of people did, you could still recognize the actor who played Jesus. Jesus was unrecognizable. And so, so to me, who's seen plenty of murder scenes, that had a profound effect on me. I mean, as a, as a man, right? Logically, as it just said like, damn, if this guy is, is a fraud, he's an idiot. Who the hell would let that happen to them for a lie? This was a dramatic. I mean, that's a, was, I mean, I'm, I'm it, sorry we're no, getting into no, a deep topic, but, a but I mean, it's it just. No, but getting, getting back to, to what we've been talking about the whole time, which is it was a dramatic rescue operation. Hmm. It was an over-the-top dramatic rescue operation. I guess I would just ask the question. I don't think you need a college degree to ask this question. Why would he kill a fly with an elephant gun? Why would he put, say that, explain what that means. Why would he put himself through that if it wasn't a big deal? If, there, if living life the way we want to wasn't right, a big deal. Exactly. There's, there must have been something as a daddy. Something was tearing apart and disintegrating and destroying his people. Yeah. And so it was a dramatic rescue operation because the impact of sin is dramatic and terrible and horrible. God inserted himself in human history because he loves people. It's just really that simple. He loves people. The Bible's a love story. It is a love story. But none of this has any meaning unless you contrast it with the opposite. It has no meaning. So if you're offended by bad news, I don't know how in the world you're going to be able to make any sense of good news. So, uh, well, anyway. I mean, I think the time is wrapping up, Sal. I know there's no limit to it, but we're just going to wrap it up here. That's a great place well, to wrap it up. It's been a sincere up. pleasure, man. Well, it's not, you're not coming back? Or what? I'm coming back. Okay, I'm just saying it's a sincere pleasure. It's well, an honor well, and privilege. Well, I mean, we're going to do a couple things here. Talk you know, about we're, Jesus. We're, we're going to muddy through this, muddle through this. I mean, I'm not a webcaster, podcaster, all that stuff, but we're going we're gonna to work through this. This is going to be a lot of conversations. Um, we're going to open it up to questions at times. We're going to even do sessions to where we're going to do live Q&As. I think that's important. What I mean, topics I, they may like ask? I mean, yeah, well, they, they send them in so we, can start, so we can start getting a feel for what topics you want to address. And we're going to be teaching from the Bible, not into the Bible, meaning we want to expose expositorily. We want to expose what is the true meaning of the Bible. And that's going to take some, some, at times, some deep conversations because you can't just read the Bible in English that wasn't in... And, and interject what the text is teaching to real life issues right. that, are, that are perplexing the culture. It's got to mean subjectively important. Sure. I mean, exactly. Right. The Bible's full of answers. We don't have all the answers. I mean, we're finite, right? I mean, there are things that perplex us. We, we simply don't have all the answers. But there's a lot of answers that we do have. God has been gracious. But the goal is a renewed mind. 
That's and right. with a renewed mind, that means that you're a better husband, you're a better wife, you're a better brother, you're a better sister, you're a better daddy, you're a better mommy, you're a better employee, you're a better employer, you're even a better enemy, to be honest with you. And it's tough. And I the talked verse, about the verse says a lot that of without, it, about that without a renewed mind, you can't even know the will of God. Yeah. Right? Because you're making up your own rules. That's you're God, right? You're pissing in the wind. I mean, we are. He said piss. <laughs> I mean, so we were designed. I think that's in the Old Testament. We were it is Samuel, 1 Samuel 20, right? Um, so, so we were designed to, to worship. We just were. And so even an atheist worships. Sure. They worship either themselves or money or something else. We are designed to worship something. It's sure. just who are you going to worship, right? And who are you going exactly right. to follow? So, so let us know what your thoughts are. We're going to be back next Thursday, God willing, at 8.30. Because you're, you're teaching next week too? I am. So we're going to do back time, at 9 o'clock. So 9 o'clock next Thursday. Hope to hear from you. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Thanks for being here.